In the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul took some time to remind his readers of the essential components of the Christian gospel. This, he said, was the thing of first importance, which he delivered to the Corinthians just a few years earlier, while he ministered in their midst. So how did Paul end up defining the gospel, which lies at the very heart and center of the Christian faith? What is the thing of first importance for all Christian believers in all times and places? That's the focus of this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this episode, I'll be taking a deep dive into the first few lines of 1 Corinthians 15, which contains a clear and succinct summary of the Christian gospel as defined by the world's earliest Christian community. I'm convinced that in too many churches in our day, the gospel itself isn't well understood. It's just one of those things that everyone takes for granted because we just sort of assume that everyone already knows what it is. As a result of this, over time, the focus begins to shift away to other, less important things. But Paul never did take the gospel for granted. As he says here in the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15, it was actually the very heart and center of his preaching while he ministered among the Corinthians. It was the message upon which they stood and by which they were being saved. And now, after he's been away for a few years, he takes time in his letter to remind them of the gospel once more. When polled, many Christians in our day define the gospel in a variety of different ways. Some say that it relates to the fact that Jesus delivers us from things like loneliness, depression, or poverty, and that if we apply his principles, we can have our best life now. Others say that Jesus inspires us to renovate all our social institutions, and that he helps us to create our best world now. You know, the one without hate, greed, intolerance, or carbon emissions. The wonderful thing about 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul not only tells us that the gospel is the thing of first importance, but he also clearly defines it for us. In verses 3 through 5, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day 
in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. You'll notice, first of all, that there are no instructions in this short summary. Nothing that you or I need to put on our to-do list. Now, of course, the Bible clearly does present commands and instructions, but what we need to understand first and foremost is that those things are not part of the gospel. According to Paul, the Christian gospel has to do with the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and raised on the third day, as testified centuries in advance throughout the scriptures, and by living eyewitnesses of his own day. This is the very heart of the good news that Christians profess. You see, the word gospel simply refers to the announcement of good news. It's a report of something that's taken place in real space and time history, the result of which brings happiness and joy, like the announcement of an important peace treaty or the end of a great war. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That is the word we have just received from the White House in Washington. And I didn't expect to hear a celebration here in our newsroom in New York, but you can hear one going on behind me. I couldn't hear anything in our speaker here with the confusion. Suddenly we got the word from our private telephone wire from the White House in Washington. President Truman announced 7 p.m. Eastern War Time tonight, Japanese acceptance of surrender terms. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The United Nations on land, on sea, on air are united and are victorious. If you had a chance to listen to the pilot episode of this podcast, you may recall that at one point in my conversation with my dad, I mentioned that famous Life magazine photograph of a sailor in Times Square kissing a total stranger at the end of World War II. So what was it that caused that sailor to kiss a woman he had never met? Well, it was just a natural reaction to hearing the good news that the war was over. So now, if you were to go back in time and give that man a list of rules for his own personal improvement, or perhaps for improving American society as a whole, do you think that message would end up generating the same kind of joyful reaction? Of course it wouldn't, because you haven't given that sailor any news worth celebrating, just instructions and imperatives that he would then need to put into practice. And that's the point I'm trying to make. The gospel lies at the very heart and center of the Christian faith, and that gospel is the announcement, not of things for us to do, but things that Christ has already accomplished. The good news, after all, is about Jesus, not ourselves. It's the announcement of Christ's victory over sin and death. The Bible is not only claiming that God revealed himself in a way to Moses, but also gives us a process by which future words from God will actually also be able to be authenticated. There are a couple passages in the book of Deuteronomy that are especially pertinent. On the last two programs, I spent some time talking with Dr. Mike Farley about the two criteria recorded in the book of Deuteronomy for distinguishing between true and false prophets. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses says that a true prophet will never lead the people to worship other gods, and that their teaching must be consistent with all that God had already revealed. And according to Deuteronomy 18, those who claim to speak for God should be completely rejected if the things they declare about the future do not end up coming to pass. So on this program, I'd like you to think about these two criteria as we consider the words here from 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 3, we're told that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Therefore, the good news about Jesus should not be thought of as some kind of departure from the Jewish faith, but is in fact the true fulfillment of it. All that Christ accomplished is consistent with the promises recorded throughout the law and the prophets. 
just as Jesus himself taught in Luke 24 when he said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul not only says that Christ died, but also that he rose again from the dead, and that this too had been witnessed both by the ancient prophets as well as by living witnesses, such as Peter and the Twelve. This is important since it fulfills another requirement from the book of Deuteronomy regarding the value of eyewitness testimony. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we're told that a single witness shall not suffice. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a matter be established. According to Paul, therefore, part of the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is that it has been firmly established by many credible eyewitnesses. Now, what's recorded for us succinctly here in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding Jesus' appearance to the Twelve is unpacked a little further in a sermon that Peter gives in Acts chapter 10. Peter says this, We are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. End quote. Notice that in Peter's sermon, we find the same emphasis on Christ's death and resurrection, which had been testified well in advance by the Hebrew prophets and which had also been seen by numerous living eyewitnesses that the matter might be officially established. Now let's take another close look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There is strong evidence that this epistle was written by the spring of 54 AD and that Paul had spent around 18 months ministering to the church of Corinth some three years earlier, which itself was just two decades removed from the time of Jesus' crucifixion. But I'd like to call your attention to the specific words Paul uses when he speaks about delivering to the Corinthians what he himself had received. Numerous scholars from a wide variety of backgrounds have pointed out the fact that the information Paul delivers in this passage is presented in a unique and stylized way. For example, in his summary of the gospel, we find parallelisms and other aids to memorization, particularly when we read that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. For this and numerous other reasons, the vast consensus of New Testament scholars today, whether conservative, radically liberal, or even atheist, is that Paul was actually citing the words of the earliest Christian creed. But we should stop to ask ourselves this. When did Paul himself first receive this tradition? When did he memorize the substance of this early creed? Well, according to a very liberal New Testament scholar such as John Dominic Crossan, the most likely source in time for Paul's reception of that tradition would have been Jerusalem in the early 30s, when according to Galatians 1.18, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter. And N.T. Wright says of this early creed, we are here in touch with the earliest Christian tradition, with something that was being said two decades or more before Paul wrote this letter. So think about the implications of this for a minute. If Paul received this tradition in the mid to early 30s when he first visited Jerusalem, 
This would indicate that the creed we find here in 1 Corinthians 15 had actually been formulated within just a few short years after Jesus' crucifixion. The reason this is important is that it undercuts one of the primary arguments that many critics have used to reject the historic Christian claims. For example, many people over the last two centuries have attempted to argue that Jesus was just a nice teacher who came preaching a message of peace, love, and harmony. Unfortunately, this same Jesus ended up saying a few things to the powers that be, which eventually got him crucified. Then as the years rolled on, what began as reverence for a martyred teacher, many decades later, ended up transforming into full-blown worship. This is how it's argued that Jesus, the inspiring teacher from Galilee, eventually became the Christ of faith. And along those lines, stories were later crafted in order to make it look as if this Jesus was a kind of God. But according to the creed we find in 1 Corinthians 15, which scholars say originated just a few short years after the death of Jesus, we find a statement of faith of the earliest Christian community. From the very beginning, we find Christians affirming this idea that Jesus was Israel's divine Messiah. This, after all, is the meaning of the Greek word Christos that we find here in this early creed, and which in English is rendered Christ. Most of us, I think, are so familiar with this word that we simply gloss over it without even thinking about its meaning. So what did Jews believe about their coming Messiah? According to Isaiah 9-6, he was to be born as a child and the government would be upon his shoulders and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is why in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls written a century or more before the time of Jesus, various Jewish writers spoke of the coming Messiah as a divine being who would one day establish an eternal kingdom. This is what is being affirmed in this creed that dates all the way back to the earlier mid-30s concerning a man who had recently been crucified. According to this creed, the one who was put to death in such a public manner at a time when Jerusalem was packed with visitors celebrating Passover was also later seen alive by numerous eyewitnesses. And the various things they claimed about Jesus concerning his death for sin, his burial and resurrection, had also been recorded centuries earlier by the Hebrew prophets. In other words, the old liberal idea that the Christian story evolved over the better part of a century from Jesus the groovy teacher from Galilee to his legendary status as the God-man who triumphed over the grave, this hypothesis just isn't supported by the facts. From the very earliest days of the Christian movement, Jesus wasn't revered as a groovy teacher, but was worshipped as the divine Messiah who came to atone for sin and conquer death. Now, when the framers of this early creed affirmed that Christ died and rose again in accordance with the scriptures, we should stop to ask what scriptures they likely had in mind. The scholars who have studied this question closely have tended to focus on one passage in particular, namely Isaiah 53. According to Daniel Boyerin, who is professor of Talmud at the University of Berkeley, there's strong evidence that many Jews, both before and after the time of Jesus, believed that Isaiah 53 was about a divine Messiah who would suffer on behalf of his people. As an example of this, a hymn was discovered in various texts found among the Dead Sea Scrolls which references the suffering servant passage from Isaiah 53. And here are some of the lines from this hymn. There are none comparable to me in my glory. No one besides me shall be exalted. For I have dwelt on high in the heavens, Who is considered as contemptible as I am? And who has been despised like me? 
Who like me has been rejected by men? Who has borne troubles like me? Who is like me among the divine beings? Sing praise, O beloved ones. Sing praise to the King of glory. Light shines out and joy pours forth. Fear ceases. A fountain for eternal blessing opens. Iniquity is ended and guilt shall be no more. If you would like to read this Dead Sea Scroll hymn for yourself, I've included a link in the show notes section of this episode. Now, the early creed we find in 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear to us that the story of Jesus didn't evolve over time, but that he was proclaimed to be the divine Messiah from the very beginning, just as Jews had expected. But what's even more amazing to me is the fact that we actually find all the essential components of this creed in the writings of Isaiah. In other words, the substance of this early first century creed doesn't merely go back to the early 30s, just after the time of Jesus' crucifixion. It actually goes back, in the case of Isaiah, some 700 years earlier. This is the real significance of the phrase, according to the scriptures, which is repeated in this creed. The famous prophecy of the suffering servant, which begins in the latter part of Isaiah 52 and continues to the end of 53, tells the story of one who will be lifted up and highly exalted, and yet also marred beyond recognition. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel, but Isaiah says this servant will sprinkle many nations. Though kings around the world will take notice and shut their mouths because of him, he will also be despised and rejected by many. He'll be pierced for our transgressions and cut off from the land of the living. A rich man will be involved in his burial, and by his death he'll make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. By the end of this passage, the suffering servant sees light and divides spoils in a victory celebration. Now, of course, many people in our day suggest that the entire story of Jesus was perhaps embellished in order to look as if he had fulfilled all the predictions that were recorded by the Old Testament prophets. The problem with this view is that, as we've seen, the deception must have taken place right at the very beginning, at a time when all the potential converts would have the opportunity to verify the claims being made by the earliest Christians. If Jesus wasn't Israel's true Messiah who atoned for sin and rose again from the dead, how and why did so many Jews in the first few decades of the Christian movement come to believe this to be the case? This early creed from 1 Corinthians 15 says that Peter and the other disciples were witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And Paul goes on in verse 6 to say that Jesus was later seen alive after his crucifixion by hundreds of people at one time, 500 to be exact. But when did this happen and why isn't it something we find recorded in the Gospels? Well, this large gathering may actually be hinted at toward the end of Matthew's Gospel. During his first resurrection appearance to his disciples, Jesus says to the twelve in Matthew 28.10, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Here Jesus is likely referring to the larger group of 72 disciples, which Luke records in chapter 10 of his gospel. So when you include this group with the twelve, and account for their spouses and family members, as well as others who were sympathetic to Jesus' mission, such as those who had been healed throughout his three-year ministry, you can begin to see how this could easily grow into a crowd of more than 500 individuals. Now, in Matthew 14, 21, we're told that during the miracle of the loaves and fishes, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, not including women and children. You see, in that time and place, 
it was a common practice to count male heads, likely in smaller groups as food was being distributed to the heads of households. So according to Matthew, the feeding of the 5,000 was in reality a significantly larger crowd than many of us actually realize. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So here we should ask, were no women or children present when Jesus appeared to his extended disciples in the region of Galilee just as he promised? Common sense tells us that they too would have been present. So more than likely, the number 500 simply reflects the number of adult male disciples who were present when Jesus appeared to his followers on that particular occasion in Galilee which of course suggests that the crowd that witnessed Christ in his resurrected state was perhaps even larger than we typically imagine. So now let's assume for a minute that Jesus never really did rise again from the dead and that most of what we find in this early creed and in the Gospels represent fictional additions and embellishments to what actually happened. Well, if this is the case, when these early Christians claimed that hundreds upon hundreds of individuals had seen Jesus alive again, Are we to believe that no one took the time to investigate this claim? Did no one check to see whether the tomb was, in fact, still empty? And what about all the claims to fulfilled prophecy? Did none of these early believers ever bother to check the public records to see whether Jesus was really born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah 5.2? Did no one ask to see if soldiers really cast lots for Jesus' clothing in fulfillment of Psalm 22.18? Or whether a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea was ever involved in his burial in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9? Did no one investigate whether Jesus really gave sight to the blind, opened the ears of the deaf, and made the lame to walk, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35? Or that he went around forgiving people of their sins, as foretold in Jeremiah 31? We know that the early Christian movement experienced explosive growth in the first few decades among both Jews and Gentiles. But given that the earliest followers of Jesus were often persecuted for their faith, Why didn't anyone attempt to verify any of these important details? As we pointed out on previous episodes, according to the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel were specifically instructed to be skeptical of those who claimed to speak for God, unless their prophetic powers were actually confirmed by the events of the real world. And yet, in the case of the early Jesus movement, which was overwhelmingly Jewish from its inception, are we to believe that no one sought to confirm that Jesus really performed wonders or fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, even under the threat of persecution? Recall for a moment the words of Matthew 23, in which Jesus says to his followers, Some of you will be killed and crucified, some will be flogged in the synagogues, and others will be persecuted from town to town. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. We have historical evidence that this sort of persecution actually occurred. So in light of this fact, how are we to account for the explosive growth of the early Christian movement? In my thinking, the most difficult aspect of the claim that the story of Jesus was embellished is recognizing the fact that many Old Testament prophecies ended up being fulfilled centuries later. For example, Isaiah 49 says of the Messiah, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, this part of the Jesus story is something that all of us are quite familiar with today, since over time, Christianity did in fact become the world's largest religion. 
So if fictional elements were added to Jesus' story in order to make it appear as though he had fulfilled various prophecies, it appears that those who invented this tale just happened to get incredibly lucky on this particular front. Jesus' message of salvation did end up reaching to the ends of the earth. Now, after mentioning this specific event in which Jesus was seen by hundreds of people, in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul then says that Jesus also appeared to James. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus' brother James is that he and his brothers are depicted in the Gospels as those who refuse to believe that Jesus was Israel's divine Messiah. John 7, 5 declares this explicitly, For not even his brothers believed in him. Mark 3.21 puts it even more bluntly. In that passage, we're told that when members of his family heard about some of the things Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. But things have radically changed by the time we get to the opening chapter of the book of Acts, which says that after Jesus appeared to his disciples for a period which lasted over 40 days, Jesus' disciples gathered in the upper room in order to devote themselves to prayer, together with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what changed James's mind? Now at this point I should note that there's a source outside the New Testament which confirms the fact that Jesus' brother James actually became a strong believer in Jesus' messianic identity. This fact is mentioned by the first century Jewish historian Josephus who says, quote, Ananus, the high priest, assembled the Sanhedrin and brought before them James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, along with some of his companions. And when he formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them over to be stoned. So this claim that James not only believed in Jesus, but later became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, is actually something we find in both Christian and non-Christian sources. And this fact should cause everyone to ask, what was it that made James such a firm believer in the messianic identity of his own brother? Even in the face of persecution and martyrdom, I believe that the best explanation for the conversion of James is what Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that after Jesus appeared to the twelve and then to hundreds of others, he also appeared to his brother James. That's really the only kind of thing that has the power to convince a skeptical sibling. This is important because sometimes people will dismiss the writings of the New Testament as products of a believing community. In other words, it's not history, but gospel which some treat as a species of religious propaganda written by true believers who've already drunk the Kool-Aid. The Gospels were written not as history, scholars say, but as a kind of divine story, a Gospel truth. When we now read these Gospels as straightforward narratives, we completely miss their point. Well, whenever we look at the Bible, we have to keep in mind what we're reading. We're not reading a history book. When scholars try to use the books historically, problems emerge. The writers sometimes disagree, and the earliest gospel was written by believers trying to spread the news about their new religion, Christianity. It's not that anyone's telling a lie. They are writing gospel. If you read a gospel as giving you straight history, you're denying what it claims to be. Those who make these kinds of claims are simply begging the question, how and why did Jesus' followers come to believe that he was the divine Messiah in the first place? And did the events recorded in the New Testament really take place or not? 
Josephus is the one who tells us that James was martyred for his faith in Jesus, his own brother. So something must have changed his mind. According to all the various New Testament documents, Jesus didn't merely show himself to believers, but to many different types of skeptics and unbelievers. And of course, the best example of all is that of the Apostle Paul. Scholars debate as to where this early creed cited by Paul ends, but essentially everyone admits that by verse 8, Paul has added his own testimony. Quote, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That last part in which Paul mentions the fact that he persecuted the followers of Jesus is a solid reminder that he had been a hostile witness before he encountered the risen Christ. In other words, it's a complete misrepresentation to suggest that the earliest Christians were members of a believing community that busied itself with spreading religious propaganda, which flew in the face of actual historical facts. In fact, the opposite is true. The people who propagate this kind of thesis in books, lecture halls, and Discovery Channel documentaries are in reality the true propagandists whose beliefs happen to be out of touch with the facts of the case. I'll explore this topic further on future episodes. As you're no doubt aware, there also happen to be some individuals who go so far as to suggest that Jesus never really existed at all, but was a completely invented character who was simply presented in a real first century setting. But the well-known agnostic New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman addressed this question head-on in a book he wrote titled, Did Jesus Exist? Here's what he writes. What easier way to undermine Christianity than to claim that Jesus never even existed, but was invented, made up, created? Ironically, these mythicists, who are so intent on showing that the historical Jesus never existed, are not being driven by historical concerns. Their agenda is religious, and they are complicit in a religious ideology. They are not doing history, they are doing theology. To be sure, they are doing their theology in order to oppose traditional religion, but the opposition is driven not by historical concerns, but by religious ones. I have to admit that I have a good deal of sympathy with these concerns, but I am also a historian who thinks that it's important not to promote revisionist versions of the past for ideological reasons rooted in non-historical agendas. Jesus did exist, whether we like it or not. End quote. Here's an audio clip of Bart Ehrman defending this position before an audience of atheists. I know in the crowds you all run around with, it's commonly thought that Jesus did not exist. Let me tell you, once you get outside of your conclave, there is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. This is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. That's why. Early and independent sources indicate certainly that Jesus existed. One author that we know about knew Jesus' brother and knew Jesus' closest disciple, Peter. He's an eyewitness to both Jesus' closest disciple and his brother. So I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice 
by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism. Frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul took the time to remind his readers of the thing of first importance, which is the good news about Jesus, who is Israel's divine Messiah. He died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. This, Paul says, is not a fairy tale or some kind of wishful thinking, but is rooted and grounded in objective facts that were established and confirmed by credible eyewitnesses, which included a number of hostile witnesses, such as James and even Paul himself. But what gave real power to the early Christian community wasn't merely the fact that strange things happened, which no one could explain. No, it was also the fact that the things attested to by these witnesses also appeared to match what Israel's prophets had written centuries earlier. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This was the thing of first importance. And this is why Christianity mushroomed throughout the first century and beyond. The point I'm trying to make here is this. The Christian gospel is not, and never has been, something we're called to blindly believe. No, from the very beginning, it was something attested to by reliable evidence of the highest possible kind. And that attestation is itself part of the good news that Christians profess. That's precisely what we find here in this early creed. In fact, in verse 14, Paul goes on to famously say that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Here he makes clear that he's basing the Christian truth claim not on our feelings, experiences, intuitions, or wishes. No, we should only believe the gospel if it's true. And if it's not true, no one should believe it. Folks, the good news about Jesus is the thing of first importance. It's not a list of instructions for improving your life or a set of ideas for improving our society. It's a completed event. It's the good news about what Jesus has already accomplished once and for all. This news is trustworthy, reliable, and firmly established because it was written throughout the scriptures in countless ways before it ever happened. There are many people in our world today who claim to know what lies beyond the grave. Some say this world is all there is and that nothing will happen when we die. Others say we'll be reincarnated again and again until we get rid of all of our bad karma. But at the end of the day, these are just claims. So what are we supposed to do? Take a leap of faith and choose the option we like best or the one that resonates with our intuition? If you think about it, all claims of this kind are essentially predictions of the future. Your future. Therefore, ask yourself which of all the various claims about the afterlife actually has a track record of declaring the future before it happens. This is true only of the Bible. Well, as I say in the introduction of this podcast, I became an atheist at a very young age, but at one point I ended up losing faith in my atheism. And as it turns out, my conversion was due primarily to the discovery of various Old Testament passages, such as we find in Isaiah 53. To me, it seemed clear that the God of the Bible had actually given proof and not merely of his existence, but also that Jesus really was the person he claimed to be. He was, in fact, Israel's Messiah, the one who came to die for our sins, to be buried, and to be raised on the third day. 
just as the world's earliest Christians confessed in their gospel creed. Folks, thanks for joining me for this episode. And for more information about this podcast, simply head to humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. Please remember that the Humble Skeptic is a listener supported podcast, and every gift helps. There are essentially two ways to give one is by upgrading to a paid subscription through Substack, and the other is to put a little something in the tip jar. You can find links for both of these options in the show notes section of this episode. Thanks to all of you who've taken the time to rate the show or write a positive review. One review that recently came in was written by someone with the username Quit Asking for a Review. So if that's you, thanks for submitting your review and for making me smile. Please also note that on this episode, I won't be asking listeners to go to the Apple Podcast app and to write something nice so that others can know what they like about the show. I'll just save that for another time. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. <laughs>